You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, thanks so much for coming this afternoon to M Pavilion. My name is Maddie Clark, and this is a sort of informal um, panel conversation or public talk called Unconciliatory Landscapes. Um, I am going to firstly acknowledge country, I acknowledge that we're on the lands of the Bunurong and the Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation. Um, pay my respects to their elders and extend that respect to any other First Nations peoples who are here in the pavilion with us today. Um, so firstly, I want to introduce myself and then I'll ask the um, two people to, to my right here to introduce themselves as well. Um, I'm Maddie Clark, so I'm M Pavilion's writer in residence for this season um, of the pavilion's programming. Um, I'm also a freelance curator, uh, editor and writer, um, as well as a, a sessional teacher, lecturer in Indigenous Studies and Indigenous Literatures at the University of Melbourne and Trinity College. Um, my main sort of research background is in whiteness studies, literature and Indigenous futurism, as well as queer theory and trans theory as well. Um, so I might just get quickly Tristan and Sarah to introduce themselves as well and then I'll sort of give a brief outline of like what I'm going to ask them to speak with me about today um, and a bit um, sort of kick off with a few questions. But if I want this to be a sort of, I imagine this is a bit of an informal um, conversation and if there are questions from you guys um, that you'd like to ask, we'll be able to have question time towards the end as well. So maybe you start with Sarah. Thanks, Maddie. Um, hi, my name's Sarah Lynn Reese. I'm a Palanga Marina Way woman from Tasmania. Um, I work in Melbourne as a well, in architecture at Jackson Clements Bowes. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, I also do a bit of teaching and writing and work as M Pavilion's program consultant for the Black Architecture series. Uh, thank you, Maddie, for inviting me today. It's quite nice to be on this side, not the one asking questions for a change. Um, uh, yeah. Thanks, Sarah. My name's Tristan. I'm a Mara person. Um, my country is just on east, like the southeast of Arnhem Land. Um, I grew up in Western Australia and I'm working as a freelance writer. I publish reviews for the monthly and publish essays elsewhere. I'm also a research assistant at the University of Melbourne and I guess, yeah, my educational background is in Indigenous studies and cultural studies and I kind of come to architecture and design from, from that field. Um, so Tristan and Sarah are people that I've invited to this conversation because I think both of you have done really interesting critical commentary on um, urban design specifically but also uh, race and theorising place and philosophies of place, um, especially you, Tristan, as a writer um, and about the various kind of meanings of decolonization um, in relation to land and thinking about land. Um, and Sarah like, has just wrapped up the Black Architecture series at M Pavilion on Monday, um, which was a series of five public talks that were organized throughout the season um, that I thought were um, superbly curated um, and with extremely well-chosen and thoughtfully chosen speakers and um, some really amazing discussion came out of that. Um, but yeah, like, a, like, she, like Sarah said, um, there wasn't so much opportunity for Sarah to do much of the talking. Often she was sort of sitting back behind the scenes, organising everything and kind of bringing the conversation to light or acting as the moderator. So I'm really happy that Sarah's been able to join the panel and answer some questions more directly as well and be a part of the conversation. Um, so 
for my part, as the writer in residence um, here at M Pavilion, I've been getting um, kind of more and more invested in uh, some of the critical dialogue that's happening in urban design and architecture here. Um, not being from a discipline in design or architecture myself or in urban planning at all um, up until now, or even really thinking about urban planning up until now, that's been really interesting for me. So I've been doing a lot of like writing and listening um, to conversations about that throughout the season. But um, in my own work, I've been heavily influenced by writers such as Aileen Morton Robinson, um, whose writing on whiteness in its sort of possessive relationship with land um, as property has shaped my thinking on questions of urban design and on design as the reorganization of space um, in accordance with racial hierarchies. Uh, the reorganization of space as a racialized colonial project um, and, and in relation to sovereignty. So that's my connection to some of these conversations and I want to talk through how some of this applies to architecture and the shaping of the city through these professional industries through design and city planning. Um, and I was sort of particularly drawn to this topic because of some experiences that I had while being sessionally and casually employed at the University of Melbourne um, teaching Indigenous studies. So as I've been sort of spending more time at the University of Melbourne I've become particularly really interested in the rise of the sort of Institutional Reconciliation Action Plan or the RAP. So at Melbourne, um, the university has placed a lot of faith in the sort of ability of acts of kind of symbolic or cultural recognition um, in the ability of the landscape of the university to sort of perform reconciliation um, through physical marking of particular sites or through um, cultural tours such as the Billabillary Walk at the campus um, and other sort of acts of symbolic cultural recognition. So indigenous names or language words on buildings, for example. One of the key pillars of the Reconciliation Action Plan in Melbourne University is cultural recognition. And I would say that that's not an exception, but um, may happen in other places as well. So the campus is sort of marked out accordingly with this kind of idea of cultural recognition in mind. Um, and there's a naming in the institution's terms of symbolic and gestural cultural recognition as a key part of reconciliation between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. And that's sort of seen as the institution's role that it plays in reconciliation. So. A few years ago, um, during a public consultation on the RAP, um, held, by, held at the uni by uni staff members, mostly non-Indigenous, um, the public was sort of asked their feedback, for their feedback uh, to give their suggestions on what sorts of resolutions and commitments they thought the university could make towards, recon re towards meaningful reconciliation um, on campus. And there was a white woman there who worked in student services at the time um, who sat there and listened for a little while to the session which went for about an hour and then put her hand up and said, I have a suggestion. Um, what if the university gave some of its land back? Um, and I think some of the people who were holding the session, some of the hosts were kind of bristling a little bit and seemed a little confused. There was an awkward silence. There was a little bit of laughter and she sort of continued and persisted and said, well, no, I'm serious. Um, the university has lots of land. Have you considered handing some of it back? Um, so after that, um, the, se the session kind of um, continued to get more and more awkward and I think it's, it was unsurprising that when the Reconciliation Action Plan actually was released, um, giving land back was not named as one of the key pillars of reconciliation in it, but cultural recognition was. So cultural recognition on campus is a kind of key area of concern in the Reconciliation Action Plan. Um, and so I'm sort of seeing, I've seen, you know, over and over again, these repeated instances where symbolic cultural recognition has kind of eclipsed um, the material or the reparative, the genuinely reparative, or the, the idea of handing land back is actually just not considered to be on the table. Um, 
there's also sort of no mention of anti-racism as an objective or as a sort of model framework and no mention of reparations as a desired outcome. Um, so I kind of, this is kind of where I'm coming from when I start to talk about reconciliation as symbolic versus reconciliation as material. Um, so I think Tristan and Sarah, both of you have experience um, working with big white institutions and kind of navigating some of this language. So I thought I'd begin the conversation here with um, the idea of the Institutional Recon Reconciliation Action Plan and how do you sort of see it in action? Um, yeah, so I've been working at the Melbourne University for a, f you know, a couple of years and I've been a student there prior to that. And I guess, yeah, one of the things that I've initially found interesting about the RAP is that it's something that as an Indigenous student or staff member you know about, everyone knows about the RAP, but if you speak to, you know, a number of non-Indigenous colleagues, it's, there's not the same sort of awareness of the RAP. And I think that and um, that person's comment around giving land back are indicative of the structure of reconciliation, like, and it's as a structure that isn't, isn't able to facilitate a form of reparations like that. Um, I mean, yeah, one of the things that the RAP does is like propose to recognise in its physical landscape Indigenous cultural heritage. But if you have a look through the RAP, um, not just what they plan to do at the university, but because it's in, I think it's in about its third, third or fourth iterate, third iteration now. Um, They've actually written into it some of the achievements and the main achievement in the RAP is numbers. So it's, it's procruitment, it's, which is a term in business dialect which means the obtaining of goods and services. So when your primary mode for bringing Indigenous people into your institution is as a good or a service, so as labour or as a, as a resource for your business, it makes it really difficult to recognise culture because you've already set up in the terms of the main way for engaging with Indigenous people something that is really quite counterintuitive to the way I have experienced my culture and through conversations that I regularly have with other Indigenous peoples, the, the way they experience their culture. It's not, it's not as, a, as a just a form of human capital, I think, for the university. And so when they undergo projects like Billabalari's Walk, which is a, a self-guided tour based on the campus, so rather than giving land back, they have um, kind of quietly re-envisioned a form of, of mapping of the campus, which is intended to give you a... Um, Billabalari was a non-reader of um, the Rundry clan and more or less the walk is to give you a, a quote, Wurundjeri experience of country but as a student one of the things that I noticed about this walk was there's a lot of disparity between what the university sees itself doing in terms of symbolic recognition and the, the, the experience of being an Indigenous student at, at the university. Um, particularly one of the stops on this tour is Marat Barak, which is a centre 
a physical space at the university which is it's essentially a space where Indigenous students can study and meet and gather and that being one of the stops on the tour places Indigenous students on display and it's quite a confronting experience when someone, a group of people rock up out the front window of the computer room and you're writing an essay to, to observe you as part of the cultural landscape of, of the university. But yeah, I mean, that's kind of my understanding of it. I think what you said about capital, like making Indigenous numbers into capital is really interesting too because I think I've, there's been times that I've thought, wow, I've on, I'm on currently three or four separate uh, casual contracts this year and um, do I count as four employees? And I think that sometimes that's the way the statistics end up falling too. So it's, yeah. But Sarah, do you have any? Um, I think, well, I have limited experience with the RAP, particularly at Melbourne Uni, but I think... Um, Oh, it always comes back to a question of motivation. Who is it for? And reconciliation goes both ways. It has to be it has to be in part Indigenous community and, well, in large part the non-Indigenous community. So it's sort of disheartening to hear that a lot of the non-Indigenous people don't necessarily know what's going on with the rap. Um, whereas perhaps the Indigenous people are far more across it, as you mentioned. Um, the I have been on the Billabalary Walk. Um... I think it's, oh, I mean, we were talking about this on Monday night and it's a bit of a, in architecture at the moment, there's a great big push to make things tangible and to make them visible and, and physical. And the, the walk itself, like, I don't want to discourage anyone from doing it or take away from it because I think having that there is really important. But there needs to, like, we need another step now. I think that's been going for quite some time. So what comes next? Um, and because there are, you know, there are traditional ways of marking place but what does that mean in a contemporary context and how is that being utilised within the university? Um, and are there safe spaces for community and are there spaces where community and, um, and the non-Indigenous community can come together? Uh, is there... I mean, OK, reflecting even more on this, sorry. I'm going around in tangents. But um, there, we put in for a job recently that... Um, as part of their rap, they'd noted that they wanted to include plaques at the start, at the opening of every building. And sort of when I read that, I was like, oh, really? Like, really? <laughs> Come on, you can do more than that. Um, but, you know, that was their first step. And so, good on them. And then if you start to think about that, actually, then anybody that walks into that building then sees that they're on a certain, um, certain country. Um, and while they might not know what that means, they at least have that level of knowledge and there's the capacity to take that further. And so in part of all the placemaking work that's happening at Melbourne Uni at the moment, there's a huge opportunity for that to contribute positively to the whole of cultural recognition and cultural awareness and, and get people up to a level where you can actually start having critical debate. Because at the moment, there's not enough of the population uh, across the board that can actually sit down and have a conversation about it without feeling awkward or without feeling paralysed. So you can't really do just one thing. Like, there has to be a series of interventions that... Well, maybe not interventions is not the right word, but a series of, um, a series of uh, goals that keep progressing. You can't sort of go, OK, we've done a plaque, OK, we've done a walk. It's like, OK, what's next? But there is no... And I understand it's difficult and complex because there is not necessarily a... There's not an Indigenous aesthetic... There's not a, um, a built environment reference that we can draw from that perhaps our Maori brothers and sisters can. So how you actually then create a space that's genuine 
um, is it's a whole new landscape. We, we're in uncharted territory. And so it, it involves a lot of collaboration with traditional owners and community and people at the university to make sure that those spaces are actually doing justice. And that's how you would create a space that goes beyond tokenism. Um, I mean, there's facadism and symbolism, and that's been the easiest way so far in, um, in the built environment, at the very least, to, you know, put a painting on the wall and say that, you know, you, you're recognising Indigenous culture, even if it's a dot painting in Melbourne when we don't have dots down here. Um, but that, like, it's time to keep going. Like, the next step. We need the next bit. What's next? I think, and the idea of remapping space is quite profound sometimes. And I think, for me, if I see a plaque you know, commemorating a coloniser in the, in the street, like, it does have an effect on you. And so actually sometimes changing, you know, even putting a different plaque on the building can have an effect on people and it's not to be understated all the time, you know, is it? Like mm. Well, it's where they changed the... Um, from Batman to Cooper, the, the voting area. Yeah. Um, like that, for example, for me, my, my heritage... Uh, well, John Batman was a bounty hunter and killed a lot of my ancestors. And so... It was always quite weird to be in that space, but then naming it Cooper is also naming it after an Aboriginal person who's hugely significant, but at the same time it's naming it after a person rather than naming it after the country or naming it after a part of that country or what that country covers. And, you know, it's not really the done thing. It's a westernised way of recognising Aboriginal people um, as opposed to perhaps figuring out what the name of that country is and using that as the, the baseline makes me think a little bit about the Roads Must Fall, um, you know, campaign to remove statues of Cecil Rhodes on campus. And, you know, yeah, again, the amazing power of that. But then it's almost like a cover-up in a way um, to replace it with, like, an Aboriginal name. Um, Tristan, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's such a hard... It's, it's, it's really hard territory to talk through. Um, and, yeah, it was like seeing... The renaming of that electric to Cooper was something meaningful to me as well. Um, but oh, God, I've forgotten what I was going to say. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's the, I guess, like that as a form of like name making is, it's, it, yeah, it doesn't align with kind of cultural practices. Um, and I think that in part is because even though you're shifting the name of a place from Batman to Cooper, from, I don't know, putting a plaque on a building, um, erecting something that has a dot painting on it, yeah, they're symbolic gestures and sim symbolism is meaningful. That's, you know, it's encoded into the meaning. But you're not changing that place politically um, or spiritually or culturally by by making those types of gestures. And I think that's what you're talking... Like, when you talk about there's a number of things to do and it's, like, it's about not just how these places look but how people are enabled to inhabit these places as well. Um, and that's... I guess that's kind of why I brought up that idea around procurement and what it actually means to be Indigenous and be in these spaces which, even though they look like they're an Indigenous space, they operationally or structurally, perhaps they're, they're not so much like that. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a 
fantastic point that I hadn't really considered. And I think about cars that have, you know, Holden cars. There's there's a Monaro, there's a Tirana, and other other commercial products. And when they they are given these names out of Indigenous languages, it's it can be a bit easier to point to them and be like, well, actually, you're appropriating. Aboriginal culture for for a different purpose, but it's it gets more difficult when it's something that we do we do want to claim back. Like so, we we want it to be named for us, but we we want quite a bit more more than that, I guess as well. And it's one of the um, issues with reconciliation is that it it does it it's about restoring order. Like it's derived from the sacrament of penance, which is returning the sinners through confession and abs ab absolution to the community of the church and it's like it's uh, uh is reconciliation about like producing indigenous people as reformed and um identify like reformed and ident the reformed and identifiable other like who is still dependent on the colonial structure for their representation or to be indigenous because that that's how the terms are set about through reconciliation. Yeah, there's a few things in what you said that I want to talk about. One is, yeah, like I guess when you said that about yeah, the um sort of religious connotations of reconciliation because I grew up in Catholic school as well is that reconciliation involves forgiving your oppressor. Um and I think that's a there's a very like sinister kind of connotation to that where it's like, you know, there hasn't been a resolution to the conflict and yet you're expected to forgive at the same time. But I also wanted to talk a little bit about, so what you, what you said about, um, yeah, like the appropriation of symbolic sort of like, you know, or linguistic um, parts of Aboriginal culture reminded me a lot of the piece that you've written about Aboriginal kitsch. Um, so Tristan's co-written an article with Lauren Burrow, who's here um, in the audience as well, about, yeah, the, um, yeah, Aboriginal kitsch as a sort of... Um, I guess, a, a sort of trend in urban design and fashion. Um, so, and part of what you wrote about in that article as well was about the portrait building. As, and that's been something that I think we've talked about a few times. It's been talked about a few times during black architecture um, about memorialization in the landscape. Um, so I think Louise Kyoto is an architect that has written about this as well. She's not here, I don't think. Um, I kind of wanted her to come so she could speak a little bit to this topic as well. But she wrote an article um, where she sort of mentions the Barack building. And again, it's sort of what you said about facadism kind of plays into it as well. Um, I'll just read out a quick, a quick quote from, from her piece. So she, wrote, she writes, Land and landscape are inextricably linked to our cultural identities, politically, personally, and historically. We are a land of migrants, recent and old, and indigenous peoples. We're all grappling with a fraught history centered around land. What does this mean for designers of the built environment? These issues are of importance to us because the tensions and power dynamics they produce are embedded in the spaces we come to design. They can also be reproduced through the act of design regardless of our intention or awareness of issues of colonization and dispossession on a conscious level. The portrait building, an apartment building directly behind the RMIT design hub which features a huge portrait of indigenous activist William Brack on its facade is perhaps a case in point. It generated much controversy on its unveiling due to its problematic or at least limited honoring of indigenous histories in Victoria relying heavily on visual reference over cultural values and connections. So what I find interesting about what she said is the idea of whiteness and racial power being reproduced through the action of design and through the practice of design. But then her criticism of the Barack building, um, 
which has been raised a few times in different ways by different people, indigenous and non-indigenous. Um, it's sort of been said in those criticisms that have been voiced that the building igno ignored the traditional owners or didn't consult with the traditional owners when in fact they sort of were working on the consultation of the building. Um, so I would say that's sort of, you know, maybe a problem with, the, with what Louise has raised here. There were sort of connections being made behind the scenes and that was sort of made pretty clear. Um, and nonetheless, people have raised issues, but I think I wanted to sort of ask, like, in your view, where does the sort of symbolic or the gestural or, like, the visually referential kind of act, um, what role does it play um, in, I guess, reparative work or decolonial work? Um, yeah, I guess that's, that's a hard question for me. I think I've spent a lot of time critiquing those sorts of modes of visual representation when they are inefficient or downright insulting. Um, I would, for me, I guess there is an important thing to note and that is that there were traditional own owners consulted in the development of the facade that now is the Barack building. Um, at the same time, like the, those traditional owners are, are working with architects in a landscape where there is so little visible identification of that land as theirs. Um, so when you're give, if you're given the op, the choice of you can participate and we will, you know, you can participate and co-sign to this facade, or we're going to progress with this building regardless and there'll be, we'll put something else up there like arm um, architecture has used um, Japan photography before. Um, they just built a new building at Melbourne University where they've, they've used a similar effect and they've created students walking around the campus. Um, in that sense, like students walking around the campus on the side of a building, it's kind of a naff idea, but it is indicative of, of the purpose of that, of that building. And I think that those symbolic gestures become meaningful when they, they are indicative of the purpose of the building, of like informed, like real consultation with, with traditional owners. Um, and uh, ongoing commitment to primarily the, the, the peoples whose land it is by indigenous peoples more broadly, I would say. Um, that, that's kind of the, the change for me. And I think there are, there are times where I've seen that take place. Like I've visited um, the University of British Columbia where they have a, a, long, a longhouse in the style of a Musqueam longhouse. And, it looks like an indigenous building and it, it functions in that way as well. It, it provides a community space, um, an educational space, uh, a place where the Musqueam community can gather and build and, and have a sort of t temporary autonomous zone within the university. Sarah, do you have anything to add? Um, I think if, like going back to talking about perhaps the William Barrack building and architecture in general, of there's quite a few things uh, at different levels. I think, for one, what was the purpose of that building? Was it to stand in opposition to the shrine? or And is that its symbolic gesture? And if so, that's probably sufficient. Um, could it have done more? 
sure. Um, but I, like we weren't in the conversa- in the room when the conversation was had, so we can't really comment. And you know, if the traditional owners say it's appropriate, then it's appropriate. So we defer to their judgment because they have the cultural authority to define what that is. Um, the I guess the the larger problem surrounding that that I have with architecture is that we tend to glorify the hero image and the final shot and that's used in all of the awards but we never talk about or publish the process. We never talk about what went wrong. We never talk about what we learnt. We only ever talk about the things that will sell the building and sell us to future clients. And so in that sense, you never because we don't talk about the process, you know, you, you hear about the William Barrack building, you hear about the, the Bundle Place building, you hear about all of these buildings that are hugely awarded for what they've done, but you have no idea if it's been done appropriately. And you have no comment from the traditional owners to coincide with that. Uh, you have no statement from the people that were consulted to understand whether or not they truly feel it was appropriate or it is appropriate. Um, and so that's a huge... Well, basically, we need to shift the way we talk about architecture. We need to be able to emphasise that process and give space for traditional owners to comment um, and not feel self-conscious about that. Um, but also we need to change procurement. So that was one of our talks with Black Architecture this series in that the way projects are set up, um, again, we were talking about this on Monday night, but quite often we receive EOIs or, or RFQs into our practice which are basically requests for quotes or expressions of interest for jobs and they'll ask us to put forward a design before, uh, but we're not allowed to speak to the traditional owners. And so before you have, before you can even speak to traditional owners, you have to put forward a design based on a narrative that may or may not be provided to you. So you're speculating, you, you're not going through the proper protocols of being invited to do the project by traditional owners. And so even from the beginning, it's not set up correctly. Um, so there's a lot of structural problems that in, lead us to a place where we can have this conversation about this building because we just don't know. So it's like the design sort of happens first and it's then it has to be overlaid onto the consultation process? Almost. Yeah, I mean, yeah. not every time. Yeah. There are projects that, um, that you know, go through a, a much more robust, robust proje- uh, process, um, but we don't hear about them and we don't learn from them and we don't use them as precedents for how we should be talking about these buildings. So there could be almost like um, what you're saying is like... Uh, oh, I've completely lost it... Um, like a a process where, like, you know, yeah, if the, indig- the the traditional owners sort of invite you to take part in the project, it doesn't come almost like there is a design being made already, and then you'll just kind of have to respond to it. Um, so I was interested as well in the idea, you know. So we spoke, you spoke a little bit about um, memorialization and um, you know the, the issue with kind of naming like one indigenous figurehead um, or having one indigenous figurehead or one indigenous face as a part of like a, a public memorial or a sort of a public site. Um, and I think um, Barangaroo was sort of mentioned as well. Um, and I think, so you had, in the memorialization talk, you had, it was Julie Bakari Jones, I think, who's Darug woman from Blacktown, talk a little bit, a bit about the work on public memorialization in that space, as um, it's it's not necessarily, a, it's, it's, it's almost like we're creating this public memorial in collaboration with um, architects that we don't actually want the public to be invited into that space or necessarily to have public access to that memorial. So the idea of this memorial this memorial that is not actually for public consumption, which is interesting when you compare it with the portrait building, which is, yeah, apartment buildings and what you raised earlier is like who is going to live in that space and how does that recreate space for Indigenous people to, to live in. Um, so 
I was thinking a little bit about, yeah, like what do you think of this sort of idea of memorialization in the landscape? Um, you know, who is it sort of for? Who is capitalizing off of it? Um, and how can it be sort of redirected in a way that it, it sort of benefits the living space of it for Indigenous people? I think first you have to define what memorialization is. Um, so is it the Western understanding where we memorialize people through statues or naming or um, through a more sort of indigenous understanding which would be story and so the difference is with the two of those one is very obvious and the other one is often held close and not shared because of a multitude of reasons um, so how do we then how do we create a new form of memorialization that's acceptable to and readable by both indigenous and non-indigenous communities uh, it's it's a up for debate that one I think um, it's exciting but at the same time you know, it's fraught with uh, a whole... Everyone's going to have an opinion because everyone always has an opinion on, on anything Indigenous in Australia. Um, and so, again, you need that transparency. You need to have those conversations and you need to actually... I mean, before you even... Well, I guess the, the project you were talking about um, from the memorialisation talk, a lot of what that project itself did was actually take a, a part of the country that had been severely uh, uh, detached and went through a process of healing with the community so that they actually felt reconnected to that space and they learnt about their culture and their community through the action of memorialisation, which in that sense was creating a community centre and a series of other programs, um, which are things that are... They're not metrics, they're not measurable, and they, you can't put quotas on them because they're about connection, they're about community, they're about feeling. And so... You know, in a world where we quite, in, or a world of capitalism where we like to be able to have quantifiable measures for everything, it uh, it's hard to advocate for, and it's hard for anybody else outside of the indigenous community to understand what that really means to the community. Um, so I don't know whether we need to get better at articulating what it means, or whether it's fine for that to just be something for for the community. Um, and it's such a concern as memorialisation becomes more and more. Um, implicated in industries like there is like kind of to an extent an interest in a lot of different industries in public memorialization um, and such a sort of like um, a huge amount of money being poured into memorializing or um, landmarking parts of European history or settler history in Australia too. I mean maybe we should be thinking about it as celebrating not memorializing yeah. so instead of thinking about it as this past thing that we're marking somehow we're talking about it how can we make this relevant to a contemporary context and celebrate it so that every community everyone knows what this means and it actually becomes part of the narrative of this country as a whole yeah I think that's a really good point like the the terminology like memory memory memorialization sets up a quite a specific relationship to the past through that that monument or that statue and I think celebrating or something that's more about a process that that needs to continue is is a is more appropriate and I'm not sure what like what the form of that is really but um, so I've yeah, I've been thinking a little bit about, like, Tristan, we had a conversation over email really briefly about um, shifting terms like reconciliation into terms like sort of unreconcili like unreconciliation or even revenge. Would you mind talking a little bit about, about, about yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, lots of R words going on, like Total. relations, <laughs> revenge, reparations. Uh, R's and uns. Um, yeah, so I'm, yeah, I guess a few things about the, the term revenge. Um, I guess... I, 
it's a it's an emotive term. Like, I it's not something I see as as necessarily as a, as a solution, but as a like a provisional a provisional counterpoint to reconciliation and really like reconciliation as it's embedded in um, unforgiveness or vice versa. Really, like the the idea drawing on, I guess, um, the Christian roots of the idea or even the way sites of reconciliation and forgiveness have played out, like in, in the TRC, um, for instance, which is the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission, um, where amnesty was granted in many cases to people that had um, committed gross um, acts against humanity and essentially what happened was the victims and the perpetrators were invited to confessions in front of the commission and there was there was a promise of reparations and some people received them but they had to have experienced a gross violation of their human rights so if you think about even in that context like not everyone is experiencing violence in that specific way um, and so out of that a lot of people were essentially forced to forgive their um, people that commit acts of violence against them in order to establish the the new post-apartheid state. And so I guess coming from that, I've thought about like the unforgivable or like the kind of resentment that that, that may um, breed in people. And yeah, I guess initially like I hadn't, really thought about revenge until I was I was living in Mexico last year and um, I became ill and m my partner and I both became ill and we later it was a stomach infection and we later found that it was it was called Moctezuma's revenge Moctezuma was um the he was a rule he was a Mexica ruler of the Aztec Empire at the time of the Spanish invasion he was an extremely powerful leader um, who was captured by Herman Cortez, the Spanish, um, and made into a puppet leader. So he was humiliated and then he was eventually killed. And so the idea is that like tourists or people who aren't from Mexico as it's now known come and they get this bacterial infection and they, well for me it was like an embodied experience of not being in that place. Um, and I found like that was quite an interesting experience of like both like colloquial like the the term Moctezuma's revenge and this embodied experience of like un the unforgiven or being the unforgiven not through my direct relationship to the Spanish but through still benefiting from that invasion. Um, and yeah, so. Essentially, like I started thinking about revenge in terms of forgiveness and reconciliation here. Um, and reconciliation being in the way it's carried out as a part of a colonising process. And I would say reconciliation probably more than anything moves towards colonial completion rather than um, restorative or reparative forms of justice. Um, and for me, that was a problem. So the idea of revenge as in terms of like you make someone suffer for how you've suffered, yeah, sure, that's, that 
being the premise of revenge, I've, I thought about, well, as an Indigenous person, as Indigenous people, how have we suffered under colonialism? And really, crudely and broadly speaking, it's like the imposition of a European worldview and world in our territories. And so if we were to take revenge for that, it would simply be to impose a Indigenous worldview or world on, on settlers in this territory. And, you know, that for some that may be suffering, for others maybe not, so it would definitely produce a better relationship to the, the environment. Um, and so, yeah, I saw that as a counterpoint to reconciliation as, and as an important thing to keep holding open ideas of forgiveness in, built into reconciliation in Australia is is the promise of, well, not even the promise, it's, it's just a lived automatic amnesty. So the idea is that there's potentially some kind of accountability when you put revenge up there as like the counterpoint to, to reconciliation. It's interesting to think about revenge as like a subversion of a colonial relationship and reconciliation as a continuation of it. Um, but yeah, the idea of suffering, that's really, that's really interesting. And I think Truth and Reconciliation Commission has already, has also happened in Canada, I think around the um, residential schooling system in, in Canada. But I think it's interesting again to think about that as reconciling something which has ongoing consequences and is still almost a system, part of a system that is still in place or was just an expression of a system that is still in place. Like, um, as opposed to like there's been a, sort of a decol decolonizing or a shift in, in land ownership in other places like to accompany a Truth and Reconciliation Commission as well. Why are we using the term reconciliation? Like reconciliation itself means to go to reconcile to a point in time where there were friendly relations, which is not the case here. And Scott Morrison has recently used it in the press um, to describe um, Captain Cook's, like the advent of Captain Cook coming to Australia. So in his sort of committing a certain amount of, I think, $6.7 million of funding to the reenactment of the endeavours um, fictional circumnavigation of us. Have you heard about this? Okay, so... Um, Scott Morrison has committed $6.7 million to a replica of the endeavour to circumnavigate Australia um, to celebrate the 250th anniversary of colonisation. And in, um, in his sort of statements about that, he said um, Captain Cook has shaped the way that um, the nation is currently um, and basically said he's responsible for everything we have, including reconciliation. So the word reconciliation was used, um, I think it was just a couple of days ago in the news. So I feel like it still holds a little bit of weight. Um, and it's, it's very, I think it's deliberately chosen. I think it sort of signals something a little bit virtuous. Um, so there's a claiming of the virtuosity of the state in using it. Um, but what I wanted to ask you, Sarah, as well, is that in, I think it was the procurement talk, um, Kieran Wong said something about, um, yeah, like act, it's sort of like um, prompting the urban designers um, on the panel to think about how reparations might be built into the landscape of the city. Um, and I think one of his suggestions was that there be like a tax on Mikey sales so that every time you touch on and you um, move across country, some of the, the royalties of that go back straight back into the indigenous community through a, a, spe a specified fund. I found that a really radical suggestion and I wondered like if you, like, what you think about the, the idea of shifting the language of even inclusion or parity or reconciliation into one of reparations and how that might open up possibilities for change in the industries? Mm. Well, in order to do anything, communities need money. 
So if you hand over land, that's, I mean, that's phenomenal, but at the same time, if there's no money behind that, no reparations um, paired with that process, then there's no power for the communities to continue to empower themselves. Um, so any means by which that's achievable would be a success. Um, what means do you think you can envision actually being, I mean, viable, just and achievable? Within the built environment? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, gosh, there's, well, land tax, obviously. Um, then uh, a percentage of development is con uh, contributed towards Indigenous communities. So, for example, uh, in the UK, 20 to 40% of new housing developments go towards key worker and affordable housing um, or to some sort of community contribution, which gets negotiated with councils at the time of um, submitting that project for planning. So there's no reason why that couldn't also be built into the process. Um, uh, I'm, I mean, there's a lot. Uh, I, I think if we... Well, you could start to have a conversation about ethics and um, the idea that, you know, if you're building on someone's country, then you use the materials from that country so that then... And the permission to use that is then built into the way that that, that material is then manufactured so we're not importing sand from really far away or, you know, any of these sorts of things. Uh, like, every step of the process, there'd be a way to rework it so that there is a contribution back to the community. Um, and just the, the, like, the conversations are great. So the conversations are a starting point, but it's incumbent on anyone that listens to it to then go back into their own lives and deconstruct their own thoughts to then think about how they themselves can do something about it. Um, which in part is usually starts with self-education. Um, and it sort of reminds me, we were talking about before about naming. I think I read something from Bruce Pascoe earlier today that 60 to 70% of the names of towns in Australia are Indigenous names, but we don't know what they mean. Um, and a lot of conversations I've had with um, my elders in the last few years have been about the power of knowing what the name of a place is to know the story of that place. Like we've already, there are so many things that are already in place. If we could just empower people to bring them to life, that would be phenomenal. That's a s total side tangent, but anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and I like, I mean, taking the focus off of individualism or like even lump sum payments in, you know, like land settlements and stuff like that into ongoing funding as well is really interesting. Um, I'll just quickly ask Tristan, what do you think about this question as well? But then maybe we'll do some open, open the floor a little bit. Yeah, it's a really good question. I guess the way I've, I've come, to, come to the ideas around repatri repatriations is, is largely through this idea of, of, a, of a land tax, um, which I think is like a fairly valid idea. My concern with that and with other other forms of repatriation like that are that it still enables a, a property owner who has power and money and property to to pass that back to someone that's renting and so for instance an indigenous person may end up living in the city of Yarra paying a rent they can't afford and paying a tax on top of that um it, it, makes, it makes me think of a quote by a Dene scholar, um, Glenn Coulthard, and he, like, he says, like, decolonisation is inherently incompatible with capitalism. And so the idea, his idea is that, like, even when you're doing community-based work, like you've spoke before about communities 
you know, you can have land, but you, ne you need money still. So it's like if what you depend on for, to subsist is, is still this, like, system of capitalism. And even to support Indigenous practices, you still, you're still constantly drawing back on that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, my key is an interesting idea. Like, I fair evade, though, so it's like... How 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 all those like is is that then actually a really useful um, way for um, Metro or whatever to get get a few more uni students paying for their my keys because now they're they're paying back the indigenous landowners. I don't know. Maybe that's maybe that is a good one. Um, it's that idea of kind of building small solutions into the system as opposed to changing the system completely, yeah. isn't it? Completely. Yeah. I mean, and that I mean. That has has real merit and value, I think, as well. It's like I don't see capitalism or the settler state ending anytime soon. And leading up to that, it would it'd be really great to see some things like this happen. Like um, I've heard Orangery elders like suggest a, a tax on every ship that comes into Port Phillip Bay or something like that. So it it becomes a a consumer tax. And you know I. Why can't that be offset by the state or the or the federal government in in a reduction in some other tax that they have on imports? Yeah. Um, thanks so much. Um, do we have time for questions? Yes. Yep. Um, does anyone have a question? No. no. Uh, just on that last thing you said. I really like the idea of sort of putting a tax on ships coming into the bay, for example, because it sort of seems like rather than like what I've been seeing recently, like companies putting in progressive policies like Ben and Jerry's or something doing something and you just sort of like still very much in a capitalist structure. But I sort of like the idea of putting a tax on boats coming in because it seems like it's sort of degrading the whole idea of capitalism, like like attacking it or taxing it from an outside standpoint, from like an indigenous standpoint, makes it, you know, it's, it's sort of like makes the people who are supportive of the ideology look at it and say, we put all these endless stupid taxes on shit and do our weird money mind games. But when someone else is doing it, it's like, oh, I don't like that. Why the indigenous people putting a tax on, on our boats and companies and stuff? Seems like a good... So two things at once. What do you think of that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, totally. I think, like, in line with that, it does, it, it feeds back into ideas around sourcing local indigenous, maybe, like, hopefully owned, like, sand or, or whatever else, or it could feed back into other forms of taxation on, on getting. So it d instead of, like, saying everything sourced here needs to be sourced here, it, it, it kind of feeds back. It's another layer of support for that, I guess. Um, I'd like to say thanks very much for the conversation today. It's been really enlightening. And obviously, it's a, uh, it's a conversation that is starting and that needs to continue in regard to looking at the issues that are raised and how best we can all address what would be appropriate for our future. Thank you. Hey, yeah, um, thanks for the panel. It's really great. Um, I've I, look, Personally, I've done a lot of research into interpretation at Hanging Rock and um, 
I, I was interested recently because of community agitation around the lack of kind of Indigenous interpretation at Hanging Rock, that um, the council did a master plan where they've um, suggested that what we need is a reconciliation walk. And um, I mean, just as a settler myself, but also being aware of a lot of the settlers who live around there, they seem to be like so eager to feel better before they even know what they've done wrong. And um, I like the idea of maybe a revenge walk. Um, I think maybe this is something that could take off. Maybe the council won't support it. But um, yeah, I don't know. I feel, like, I feel like means with which to make settlers feel bad about something is, and, and kind of structures or planning or something is, is needed. I don't know what you guys think about that. Um, yeah. I feel like maybe a revenge walk at Hanging Rock might just um, seal the deal on the, the kind of violent reputation it has, right? Um, I think, well, there are so many walks. There are so many reconciliation walks. Um, I think what, if we're talking about reconciliation, understanding it as a process of forgiveness and both sides coming together, assuming that we have some place to come together, then perhaps that's what we need. We need a place to come together. Um, like in large part, in order to get over the trauma of what has happened, first you need to articulate what happened and everyone needs to know what that is. And then there needs to be time to grieve and then a process of building what comes next together. Uh, we, we have a shared history for the last 200 whatever years, depending on where you are in the country. We can't ignore that. We need to deal with that. And perhaps if our built environment spaces can facilitate that, um, perhaps less... It needs to be a conversation. Like, you need to actually have a face-to-face -face conversation because then you can have empathy and you can actually understand and you can put yourself in somebody else's shoes and understand... and and. Uh, go through a process of deconstructing your own mind. I mean, I, I don't know about you guys, but I've spent a lot of my time deconstructing everything that I've learnt so far and then reconstructing it because there, there are so many things that we were taught at school that just aren't real. And you, all of those things tend to minimise your own understanding of your own identity. And so when you deconstruct them and then rebuild yourself up, if we could do that as a country together, it'd be phenomenal. Um, I have been doing a lot of thinking in, in terms of sovereignty um, in like the lens of like what I can personally control versus like what I have like no control over. And so I guess like my question um, is like how do you guys personally practice your sovereignty, like especially in the context of space but like not limited to space? Yeah, but just because we're talking about space so I put that there. <laughs> question um, I've been thinking a lot lately about like st being strategic um, and what it means to sort of protect yourself at the same time as create change that needs to happen around you um, and I guess a little bit about self-preservation in the in the way of like not wanting to always commit yourself to every institutional fire or every sort of um, every struggle or every conflict that is available to you because there's always going to be heaps of them um, so I've been yeah kind of negotiating a little bit with myself like what um, what to pursue and how to pursue it and when to pursue it as well, um, but what do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, along the lines of that, like, self-preservation is, is something that is really integral to me practicing sovereignty, so to speak. Um, I mean, I, I grew up off-country, like, I grew up in Western Australia, so, like, to express my sovereignty is to express 
that I've like I come to know myself through a form of dispossession. So it's a, quite a fraught process. Um, in terms of like sovereignty more broadly, in terms of like sovereignty for my group or nation, so to speak, um, I've been I've been interested in like in informal representation. Um, and so in terms of there's three types breaking and then breaking that down further into like three types. So willing informal representation where so for instance, if you ask me this question I'm and I'm saying, well, this is how Indigenous people practice their sovereignty. Um, unwitting informal representation is if I do that and I don't really realise that that you're gonna go that you're taking this knowledge somewhere else and then un unwilling informal representation and I think in terms of self and like cultural community preservation that's that's what I've been practicing and it's like it's not an unwillingness to present myself as indigenous but it's an unwillingness to do that in a way where I'm speaking for all people in my community or all indigenous young people or all indigenous people more broadly and so that that for me is a way of practicing sovereignty in terms of like trying to facilitate others to have that that form of sovereignty as well i think taking the time to listen to elders and learn and gain knowledge over time and understanding and no longer getting frustrated that it's not all going to be available um in a, well, again, we spoke about this on Monday, but in a Western framework of knowledge, knowledge is accessible all the time. You have the right to know it. In an Indigenous context, it's granted to you when it's felt that your elders... Uh, sorry, when your elders feel that you need to have that information. And so that quite often is challenging for young Indigenous people because we're at the very beginning of our journey and we don't hold the cultural knowledge that our um, elders do. And so quite often you, you find yourself in these positions where someone's asking you your opinion on something and you haven't had time to form it yet because you haven't been given the information that will allow you to have a critical opinion on it. Um, I think in terms of working and my day-to-day -day life, um, especially in architecture, uh, becoming comfortable with the idea of taking up space because I'm at the very beginning of my career. Uh, you know, I'm not yet registered as an architect, but I'm practicing an art. I mean, you don't have to become registered, it's fine. Um, but uh, in terms of the hierarchy of where we're at, I'm like two steps up from the bottom, even after seven years of uni and all of that. Um, but feeling comfortable to have an opinion, even though, on, on this topic, feeling comfortable to come up here and talk about it and knowing that, you know, through the process of, the Black Architecture series, there are questions I don't know the answer to. I don't know that much about procurement, but that's an opportunity to then invite people who know so much about it and learn from them and continue that conversation into other people's minds and let them take it away. So I guess it's my the way that I would practice it. My day-to-day -day life is carving out that space for me to learn, but also then to uh, allow other people into that learning. Lala, that was a really good question. Um, are we almost out of time? Kind of out of time. Do we have time for one more question? Yeah, one more. All right. Um, someone else. Thank you. Uh, my question's about public space and the way people generally learn um, is often through 
signs and things that they can read and understand when they go to a place. But I'm hearing that a lot of the knowledge in Indigenous culture is communicated in a face-to-face -face way and with permission sought, not it being somebody's right to know. If part of the um, problem in a lack of understanding um, of the Western world um, about uh, the problems that Indigenous people have uh, experienced and their lack of um, lack of um, happiness with the way things are. How can we try and communicate that more to people um, in public spaces? Is it a case of setting up more M pavilion type places so that um, People have got the chance to go along and listen to face-to-face -face conversations. Uh, I, I'm not quite sure. Like, do you have any ideas on how we can do that without being tacky and putting up a sign saying, this is what happened on this space on this particular day, something that's more meaningful and genuine? These kind of events are transient. And so you experience them for a certain period of time and then you go away and you think about them. And so if at this point in time in our history and our relationship between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australia, these things are crucial and key. So 100% more opportunities to have these kind of conversations are what we need right now. If we continue to reconcile, for lack of a better word, um, in the future when there's trust between Indigenous communities and non-Indigenous communities, trust between government and Indigenous communities and trust between institutions and Indigenous communities, those things will become more open. That knowledge will be able to be shared because it will be trusted that it will be used in a way that it should be used. And in part of sharing that knowledge is you also learn the protocols of how that knowledge can be used. And a lot of the issues have come where that knowledge has been inappropriately used, which is why now communities sort of keep it to themselves. Um, and uh, knowledge gets reappropriated and used in a whole series of different ways that then damage the relationship even further. And so it's a long game. It's going to take a long time for this country to come to a place where people are happy to be open and sharing because they trust that that information will be used as it should be. Um, but, yeah, look, there are so many plaques. <laughs> there are so many... Th I understand what you're saying. It does get to... It gets to a point now where it feels slightly tokenistic, but... For, for We need them as a first instance, but they should be designed by community. They should be community's words. They should be community's designs, uh, telling stories through community's voices, and that way they're genuine as a starting point. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thanks, you guys, for being part of my Thank panel. You. Um, thanks, everyone, for coming. You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. Visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.